0: This is Macro Horizons, episode 30, The Dawn Days of Summer, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of August 5th. And a reminder, when it comes to rate cuts, one is never enough.
1: Eh,
0: they're small. Take three.
2: Views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, we knew it was going to be a big week, but that was something else. It sure was. Not only did we get the 25 basis point rate cut that the market was anticipating, But Powell subsequently came out and didn't give the amount of direction that the market was looking for in the press conference, and so the market backed up somewhat, at least in Treasury space. Now, that created a fair amount of uncertainty, which was then subsequently layered on when the White House announced an additional round of tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese imported goods, 10% as it stands now, which means that all imports from China are subject to some type of levy, at least starting on the 1st of September. Now, obviously, this repriced the Treasury market to a much lower yield range, 10-year yields are now back to the trading range that was in place before the 2016 election. And frankly, I think that that is pretty telling. The trading range that I'll be looking for during the balance of the summer is between roughly 155 and 190 in 10-year yields. 175 is obviously pretty doable in that context. There are very strong seasonal patterns in the treasury market that tend to reach their peak in terms of lower yields around the middle part of September. And that's going to correspond well with the September FOMC meeting. So it's reasonably safe to say that there'll be downward pressure on rates between now and then. There was an open question immediately after the Fed about whether or not we were actually going to see that September rate hike delivered simply because the tone the market was anticipating wasn't struck by Powell. In the wake of the escalation of the trade war and the relatively benign non-farm payrolls report, the market has priced in effectively 100% odds that we're going to get that September move. This fits remarkably well with the narrative that we've been on about, and that is the futures market has a very strong history, of pricing into the foreseeable future, which in the treasury market is roughly six months. So whatever the prevailing monetary policy stance is, and now it's a 25 basis point rate cut at every meeting, we tend to price in for the foreseeable future. So at this point, we're going to be pricing in two additional rate cuts and a period of pause for reassessment. Every time we get each incremental rate cut, we'll price in another two. And that's exactly what we're seeing play out at this moment. So using this as a backdrop, That suggests that in the run-up to the September meeting, not only will September be fully priced in, but we'll also have an October and December rate hike priced in, which is why we're projecting that the low point for the 10-year yield over the next few months is going to be sometime in September. The flip side there being, as the market starts to digest the reflationary and positive economic implications from a series of rate cuts— we would expect there to be a renewal of animal spirits, good for risk assets for the outlook in 2020. And that's really going to be the trade for the fourth quarter of this year. One of the biggest takeaways from the non-farm payrolls report on Friday was that, frankly, employment doesn't matter at this point in the cycle. The reason that 10-year yields are below 190 is simply a function of the trade war and the lack of inflation in the system. I was surprised to see how quickly the market was willing to dismiss the strong average hourly earnings figures that were contained in the July BLS report. In fact, the three-tenths of a percent Back-to-back monthly gains in wages in a normal situation might have been a more bearish impetus for the Treasury market. But the fact of the matter is that the realized wage gains that we have seen so far in this cycle haven't translated through into true demand-side inflation. And so that narrative has become strained, to put it mildly.
1: So Ian, I would have to imagine Thursday night your
0: phone was lighting up asking if you're changing your rate call. To be fair, I did get quite a few questions about whether or not it was time to revise down the range that we have for 10-year yields into the end of 2019. Right now, we're at 225 to 250 for 10s, and frankly, we've been there since last November, and so revising down the range wouldn't be that unreasonable. We're not quite ready to do that just yet. And I want to go through some of the logic and the reason that I'm expecting a somewhat bearish fourth quarter. At its essence, the Fed has tried to jump far enough in front of any economic slowdown to avoid a more material recession in 2020. The question is whether or not they will be able to pull that off. In my mind, the one missing sign that the economy is rolling over and we should anticipate a near-term recession has been the labor market. The unemployment rate is still very low, albeit off of the cycle lows, and we continue to see reasonable monthly gains in nonfarm payrolls. Friday's report was a very good example. Wage gains are starting to come back, and there will be a point in which realized inflation figures in the second half of the year trend a bit higher if we see the typical late cycle spike in CPI. Hasn't happened yet. Very easy for the market to dismiss that, particularly given the implications from the trade war. That being said, I remain relatively constructive on the Treasury market in the very near term. Could easily see 10 year yields reaching 175. It's really that reflationary animal spirits impulse in the fourth quarter that fits well with the seasonals that has me continuing to see the risk of going north of 225. The flip side of this argument, and one of the many reasons that I've been losing sleep recently is what if we're just starting to see the trade war and the dimmer global economic outlook trickle through to the domestic labor market? Now, the reason the domestic labor market is so important is because as soon as consumers start to feel less comfortable about job security, then they spend less. And every recession in the U.S. ultimately has its origin somewhere on the consumption side.
1: And I think this past week, two really good data points that illustrated exactly that point is A, the concerning drop in ISM manufacturing employment to the lowest level since November 2016, and B, in the Challenger job cuts release, it was explicitly laid out that the pain is being felt in the manufacturing sector as a direct result of trade uncertainty and producers just not knowing what lays ahead for their input costs.
3: Those points are all well and good, but at the end of the day, the U.S. is a services economy. Manufacturing matters, of course, but it is not the economy in and of itself. And so I think it also is helpful just to take a step back and realize there was a lot of noise that came out this week. Powell's communication left something to be desired for sure. But if you take a step back a week ago... And said, "Okay, if the Fed is going to cut by 25 basis points and balance sheet roll off early, have no change to IOER, keep guidance in the statement to provide additional cuts, not pre-commit by any means, but certainly seem to have a cut bias, that seems like that would be consensus. And that's actually what we got. I think the big news and the big surprise was 24 hours later getting the new tariff announcement.
0: It certainly was the escalation of the trade war, and that is really what repriced the treasury market. Although, John, to your point that the service sector is really what drives the U.S. economy and manufacturing, particularly domestic manufacturing, is far less relevant, I would counter that the big narrative over the course of the last two years post the 2016 election, was that manufacturing was about to matter a lot more in the US than it has in the last 20 years. So we saw a lot of the optimism, particularly on the business side, being driven by the manufacturing sector, which was anticipated to spur further or additional hiring, which was expected to at least incrementally Drive up wages somewhat. And the fact that the Treasury market, particularly 10 year yields, is now trading back in the same range that we saw in the middle of 2016, immediately before the election, I think is very telling and consistent with the fact that we've really priced out all of that upside. And we're back to the realities of a relatively benign growth profile, inflation that seems unable to get off of the mat and an increasing amount of global uncertainties. So another way to say this, I think, is
1: that, Ian, as you often highlight, the market trades the party. And that's why we saw that large sell-off in 2016 and an even further sell-off in 2017 as the pro-growth impulses of a pro-business administration, tax cuts, etc., etc., fed through to the market. And now the realities of what has played out has now completely
0: erased that move, at least in 10-year treasury space. Yeah, I would agree. And now the question becomes Has the administration done enough damage to the way that the rest of the world views the US on the global trade stage that we're in for a period of downward global and domestic momentum?
3: Yeah, at a certain point, you know, my inner economist just thinks of trade, the only way manufacturing was going to come roaring back is if the cost of production in the U.S. gets much, much cheaper. So workers take a massive pay cut. The dollar loses a ton of value. So suddenly by a comparative, it makes a lot more sense to do it domestically. Or you rewrite the rules of global trade, which certainly is not going to be positive in the aggregate. The first two hasn't happened. The dollar's at a multi-year high. If anything, wages have crept up, which socially is good, but makes it really hard to compete with places where that's not the case. And the world trade order is still largely intact. And what I mean by that is WTO still exists. NAFTA was just kind of rebranded. But there's a lot more uncertainty and headwinds going forward. And it really does seem like we're kind of tipping over into a broader slowdown.
1: I'm happy you bring up the dollar, John, because we've seemed to have talked about this more and more recently. And that is the prospect for... A Currency War, to use kind of the punchy headline title, and the devaluation of the dollar, even though, as you say, the dollar is now at multi-year highs.
0: One point that I would like to start with is that the phrase currency war might be a bit misplaced. And the reason that I say that is what we're seeing and what we anticipate we'll see in the future are major central banks taking monetary policy action very consistent with their goals, it isn't necessarily focused on disproportionately benefiting the manufacturing or the export sector per se, but in the U.S., for example, if Powell's goal is to change the way that the market perceives the Fed's relationship with inflation, a weaker dollar means that we will be importing at least commodity inflation to some extent, as well as core goods inflation. But as we know, the service sector in the U.S. economy is far more relevant than the goods sector.
3: And just at a certain point, the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. This continues capital inflows into the U.S., which creates the dollar to be structurally stronger than it would otherwise be, leading us to be in a little bit of a current account deficit. It's kind of the trade-off with having the dollar be the terms of trade globally, is your currency is a little bit stronger, which does weigh a little bit on your exporter manufacturing base. But do you really want to give up the exorbitant privilege of having the dollar as the reserve currency of the world in exchange for trying to bring back manufacturing?
1: From everything we've seen from the Fed, Powell's answer to that question is almost certainly no, even if, sure, technically the
0: dollar is the responsibility of the Treasury Department. Yeah, but when interest rate parity is so relevant in setting exchange rates, I think it goes without saying that central banks have a pretty significant influence. There were very few surprises within the FOMC statement and subsequent press conference, at least using the price action as a gauge. John, what were some of your biggest takeaways from the press conference? I think Powell was just kind of in a no-win
3: scenario. If he came in and he pre-committed to additional rate cuts, he would be seen as capitulating to political pressure. If he came in and said rate cuts aren't guaranteed, stocks tank, front end sells off, and he's seen as committing a policy error. What we kind of saw is, at least up until the tariff announcement the following day, Tuus had almost done a round trip in the 24 hours following. So even though it was kind of a bungled communication message, The reality is all he really said is we cut, there's global headwinds, low inflation, and we're poised to cut again if appropriate. That kind of seems consensus, even if it isn't as aggressive as some had hoped. And to use his words, I didn't say it was just one. Yeah, exactly. That's never a good look when you have to backtrack that much and clarify, but it's a really difficult position. Frankly, it leads a question of is there value in doing press conferences every single meeting by construction? If you looked at the price action after the statement, it was incredibly subdued. It really was just the round trip and back and forth during the press conference that led to huge volumes, almost certainly some positioning pain and blowouts, but You know, on net, I think they ballpark got away with it. And then, of course, the world changed with the new tariff announcement.
0: It'll be interesting to see what happens at the September meeting, because in September, not only will Powell have another press conference, but we'll also see an update of the Fed's projections. They didn't have that in July, which to some extent muddied the waters. It will be fascinating to see how the dot plot is expected to develop over the course of the next 18 months. I could easily see a situation in which the dot plot reflects what will be consensus at that point, which is another two rate cuts that lead us exactly back to that 90s scenario of a net 75 basis points of fine-tune easing, and then a period where the Fed anticipates rates being stable throughout 2020. How would the market react to that?
3: I think that's what they were trying to do. And I would also point out how fluid the macro situation is. If you go back to 1995, 1998, there wasn't anything as majorly growth negative as surprise tariff announcements. The risk that they're running this time is, say they had a dot plot in July, it would immediately become stale after the most recent round of tariffs. So it was their thinking before the announcement, if anything, they're probably going to cut deeper. And I guess one point that I would make is, there was already an argument that given how close they are to the zero lower bound, that they need to move more aggressive this time, all else equal, than they would have back in the 90s. So this could argue for something like 100 basis points of cumulative cuts, If you add in the fact that there's a chance that every time they move, they get a ratchet up in tariff tensions, they're really just trying to offset the growth negative impulses coming out of the White House, but it could certainly set the table for more than 75 basis point cuts, even in a stabilization world.
0: Yeah. The cynical among us might make the argument that if the White House is truly trying to force the Fed's hand By increasing trade tensions either immediately after or immediately ahead of the major Fed events, there becomes a feedback loop where monetary policy needs to catch up with these negative growth impulses. To use a popular monetary policy
1: analogy, it seems like the government is driving with two feet. You have on one side, the Fed pressing the accelerator, while on the other side, the White House is tapping the brakes.
0: How will this all play out? So, in the vein of what could go wrong, let's talk a little bit about the shift in issuance, bills coming back, the debt ceiling
3: becoming a fading issue quickly. Yeah, that's a good point. We're currently sitting in a world of near record primary dealer net positions, elevated repo rates, and now Treasury's going to issue 150, 200 billion in net bill supply over the next few weeks. That's kind of a recipe for a bit of a funding squeeze. But I would argue that perhaps we shouldn't be as concerned about a severe scenario, though certainly some cheapening in Treasury OIS should occur. I would say that there are two primary reasons to be a little sanguine about the situation, or at least not hyperbolic in fear. The first is... If you look at the amount of cash sitting on the sideline and some of the government money funds, it looks like eventually the bill market will cheapen up a little bit and entice marginal buyers. This really puts a cap on how high that those rates can go or how much it can cheapen versus OIS. This isn't to say we might not see a few basis points of cheapening, but it shouldn't blow the roof off or anything. The second factor is once again due to the Fed. The Fed's decision to stop balance sheet roll off early mechanically equates to 28 billion in less funding needs for treasury. So basically the way that works out is rather than having to borrow 160 over the next 2 months, it's 130. Still big numbers, but, you know, what's 30 billion among friends?
0: Uh, 30 billion?
1: And let's not forget further out the curve, we get August's refunding auction series this week. And in light of what has happened, aka what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes, there's definitely a bullish underpinning going into particularly 10s and 30s, even with yields now back to 2016 levels. This
0: does beg the question, how do auctions typically go when they come at the low-yield marks? Selling an instrument at the high can often be problematic.
1: Yeah, and we could certainly see maybe some modest tails, particularly in 10s and 30s. But given how far yields have fallen over this past week, That will really, in my mind at least, serve as more of a reason to expect the market to catch its breath in an
0: otherwise relatively quiet day to week. One of the things that we have seen develop, at least anecdotally, over the course of the last week, week and a half, has been the return in the secondary market of more active foreign participation. It'll be interesting to see if that actually translates through to the primary market and if the auctions presumably will have reasonable concessions ahead of time, actually end up seeing an above-average non-dealer allocation.
3: It's especially noteworthy in the week after 30-year boons dropped below zero for the first time. Treasuries don't look cheap, but at least they have a positive yield.
0: Negative 50 basis points on German 10-year yields also put U.S. Treasuries at 190 in an entirely different context.
3: And more generally, it makes sense that boon yields are falling. The ECB is about to cut rates again. It's about to announce another asset purchase program. Is there a risk it's going too far too fast? The market's getting ahead of itself. And you can see a bit of a snapback, almost a buy the rumor, sell the fact kind of situation. Falling yields make sense.
0: But does a 10-year yield in Germany at negative 50 basis points make sense?
3: I mean, if they're shadow doing some version of yield curve control, where you set the deposit rate at negative 50 and then it's flat out to 10 years, maybe, but they haven't actually done that. It just seems the market's pricing negative 50 at infinitum. And there are some global banks who
0: are reportedly passing through negative rates to the upper end of their depositor base. I think that is an interesting shift that we haven't really seen since the crisis.
3: And that was always the fear about negative rates. You try to actually put negative rates on someone, which also is just a way to charge someone for holding their money, which isn't as crazy. But if they try to put negative rates on the deposit base, are you going to see some version of a bank run? And either you go to a competitor who's still at zero, or just pull cash out of the system. There's actually a point in which the storage cost of cash has a number on it. Brings a whole new term to safe deposits.
0: I thought summer was supposed to be boring. Like I always say, there's no such thing as a boring market, just a boring strategist.
3: At least our world has very treasured asset class. At least it's not a boring market.
0: Ugh. In the week ahead, it's going to be a defining moment for the Treasury market, quite frankly. We have all of the major policy events in the past for the summer. The next big Fed story won't really occur until the September FOMC meeting. Trump has thrown down the gauntlet yet again on the trade war. And in that context, the question isn't will China respond, it is how will China respond and how will investors interpret that in terms of its severity and what it means for the global growth outlook. The fallout, which was evident in Europe, continues apace. We have the export story in Germany that very quickly became a domestic demand problem. That continues apace. We also have the ECB, which is poised to do some type of transition into either lower rates or lower rates combined with another asset purchase program. So... As a result, the tone of global accommodation is very much in place. So with that backdrop, what happens when the U.S. Treasury Department conducts its August refunding? 10- and 30-year auctions are going to be very telling. They're going to be telling in terms of the amount of demand at specific yield levels. The 10-year solidly below 2% probably goes into the auction that way. How much interest are we going to see globally to buy 10-year treasuries yielding less than 2%? It's an open question, and frankly, it's an open question that we believe gets resolved in the favor of sponsorship for treasuries. Now, the front end of the curve is an entirely different story. We came out of the FOMC meeting expecting that there would be a period of debate around whether or not the Fed would follow through with a September 25 basis point rate cut. Trump's actions on the global trade front have pretty much locked in the fact that we're going to get another 25 basis point move in September, follow that with another in October, and then the big question becomes, was that enough? Are investors going to be satisfied with that? If we look at the reaction in the equity market, at least thus far, the word satisfaction isn't what comes to mind. It is that translation between tighter financial conditions as evidenced by a spike in equity volatility that will Ultimately, prompt even further action from the Fed. What we're debating, at least internally, is how viable is that period of optimism that we're expecting in the fourth quarter? Will the market so quickly move beyond any deflationary impulse, or will we see a repeat of what has become now very typical seasonal bearishness into the end of the year? In terms of economic data on the horizon this week, the July. ISM non-manufacturing release, while conceptually very interesting, becomes far less relevant when it occurs after the employment report. Nonetheless, the sentiment evidenced in a lot of the surveys in the manufacturing sector has been on a negative trajectory for quite some time. The service sector, however, has held up. It is held up in Europe, and it's held up domestically as well. If and when that takes a turn for the worse, will be an inflection point. It'll be an inflection point for the outlook and presumably the market as well. That said, we are not looking for anything dramatic on Monday. We do have a few Fed speakers who will help further refine expectations for monetary policy. It will be notable when we hear from Bullard and Evans in terms of their willingness to implicitly commit further to a series of rate cuts. We've been on about the re-steepening of the 2's-10's curve for quite some time, and frankly, this last week really challenged that notion. We still think that the cyclical re-steepening of the 2's-10's curve will occur, it's been delayed clearly and our tactical steepening trade we've been stopped out of so at the moment we're content to continue to watch the curve trade in a range and focus more on the longer end and in that context anytime that we see 10 year yields anywhere north of 205, give or take. We expect that will be a reasonably strong buying opportunity, and we'd fade any move closer to 175 this week, although ultimately we do expect that level to be tested in the next few weeks. We've reached a point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. And please note that as the dawn days of summer are upon us, The best way to beat the heat is not to tweet. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro horizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode please email me at ian.lingen at BMO.com. That's i-a-n dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable.